Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. So happy to have you joining me today and downloading and subscribing. If you haven't, hop over to iTunes and subscribe, or you can go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and subscribe in a whole bunch of uh, different outlets from iTunes to Stitcher to iHeartRadio to Google Play and a couple more. So thanks again, everyone, for joining me today. And uh, be prepared this summer. We've got a lot of really great shows coming up. Um, some I'm, and I'm excited for all of them. And uh, be sure to follow me on social media at Karen Litzy NYC on Twitter for updates on all of our new shows because we've got some really fun stuff coming up this summer. I'm super excited about it. Just as I am excited about today's episode. So. Uh, As the title suggests, we're talking about care transitions, and we're also talking about the fragility of our patients. And this was a great conversation I had with Dr. Kenneth Miller. He's a physical therapist and educator with more than 20 years of experience working in home care and inpatient rehab settings, as well as more than five five years in adjunct faculty roles. He is currently a clinical educator and physical therapist at Catholic Home Care in Farmingdale, New York, right here in uh, the great state of New York out on Long Island and a consultant for the Corridor Group. He has taught for New York Institute of Technology, University of Michigan, Flint, and Toro College. He is a co-author of the book, Providing Physical Therapy in the Home, published by the APTA, which is the American Physical Therapy Association, as well as the author of peer-reviewed publications in neurorehabilitation in the Journal of Geriatric Physical Therapy. He has presented at the APTA Combined Sections Meeting and the NEXT Conference. He chairs the APTA's home Health Section Practice Committee and is a member of the editorial boards of Topics in Geriatric Rehab, Jerry Notes, and the Journal of Novel Physiotherapy and Physical Rehabilitation. He is the recipient of numerous honors, including three APTA Home Health Section Awards, 2016 Section Contribution Award, 2015 Outstanding Effort Award, and 2010 Excellence in Home Care Award. In 2012, he received the Shining Star Award from the Long Island Health Network. He is a board-certified geriatric specialist, a Team Steps master trainer, and an APTA credential clinical instructor, and an APTA-certified exercise expert for aging adults. Um, and I was so, so great to talk to Ken. I'm also a member of the Home Health Section, so big shout-out to the Home Health Section. And today we talked about what happened to page, What happens to those patients when they leave their inpa- inpatient setting and then have to go to home health? So... What, where is, what is the current state of information transmission between physical therapy settings? Uh, what biomarkers are used to evaluate the health status of patients and the fragility of patients? This was great. I learned so much with, from this. Uh, the real risk of patient fragility and the importance of adequately overloading during treatment. As you know, oftentimes with the older adult, we tend to underdose and underload, which doesn't help anyone, including our patients and how to enhance home compliance and educate patients through technology. So we got through a lot with this episode, and 
really kind of went off into a great direction. It wasn't really anything that we planned or when we started, uh, when we were chatting beforehand and emailing beforehand, we had all these ideas and the conversation led the way that it did. And I'm so thankful that it did because I think this is a great opportunity for people uh, to learn, to learn about those care transitions and to really learn about the fragility of the patient. Nicholas Rolnick just put something up on Facebook, a question just last week, and I was so excited to say, wait for the podcast because it's going to be good and it'll give you all the information you need, and it definitely will. So um, a big thanks to Ken Miller for coming on and for his lending his expertise and his knowledge to all of you guys and to me as well. So I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Uh, be prepared to take some notes, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Ken. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Oh, it's very nice to be on. Thank you for having me. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about care transitions. And for those of you who don't quite know what we mean, we're talking about care transitions from when we have a patient that maybe goes from acute care to home to outpatient or maybe acute care to a skilled nursing facility to home to outpatient or maybe they just don't even have to go to outpatient, they stop at the home. So Ken and I are both home health therapists, and we're going to talk a little bit about those care transitions of, of what it's like when we're seeing patients that are coming from other facilities. And I kind of touched on this a little bit in my interview with Cal Ridgway and Kenny Veneer, but I think Ken and I are going to dive a little bit deeper, um, and we're going to kind of focus on the home health section because both of us are, are doing home health. So... Ken, let's talk about from that home health perspective, let's say someone, we'll start, let's say someone is discharged from a hospital or maybe even a skilled nursing facility. What, what is missing? What is, what, what is missing in the communication uh, between your setting home health and those other two settings we just met, I just mentioned? So when I receive a patient from a SNF or the acute hospital stay, we oftentimes receive a referral that has the discharge paperwork that the, from the facility the patient was in, and we'll get orders, we'll get uh, medical information, but the part that's lacking is really the functional information. What was the patient's uh, ambulation status or physical activity status in the hospital? More times we'll get that information from a SNF because they're, they're coming out of a rehab setting. But oftentimes, I find that information may not be complete. The information may be lacking ambulation distance. It may be lacking uh, information that I need related to falls risk. Uh, what is that patient's current pain level interfering with function? So the, the records are often incomplete. And if I were to try to follow back with the hospital or with the SNF facility, oftentimes it's very difficult for me to speak to the therapist or the PT assistant or anyone in the rehab department for that matter to get the information I need. And so it becomes a, 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 a futile sometimes uh, to try to get that information. And I know some clinicians, you know, they've stopped reaching out to hospitals and just try to do the best they can with what they have, not, not being able to get a hold of, of prior clinicians. And, you know, I used to work in an acute care hospital. And it is hard as the acute care therapist because sometimes you're only seeing that patient one or two times and because the push is to get them out of the hospital as quickly as possible so that by the time the home health, they may be seeing a home health therapist could be a couple days later and you might have already seen 50 patients in that time, right? 
So it's it's definitely a little difficult. But I think maybe having a more complete um, discharge summary or if and, and again, this is just more, it's more paperwork, right? And that's one of the, it's like the bane of every PT's existence, you know? Absolutely. I, I think uh, not to, trying not to point fingers at, you know, upstream, you know, I'm in home health, so I'm looking upstream at, at the inpatient settings. I'm not pointing fingers at them. It's difficult for clinicians that have to see 16, 20 patients in a day that may go to see patients that are now discharged before they're even, you know, they're, they're just not in their room and they find right. out, oh, they got discharged yep. and they didn't have time to, to document what they needed to, or the patient was out of test and things happen. So it's, it can be very chaotic in, in some inpatient units. Uh, and even in the SNF facilities, therapists are not always the driver of the care plan or driver of the the discharge plan and, and people leave sometimes against medical advice. So mm -hmm. there are many challenges to getting the appropriate information. But one thing that I, I believe would be helpful is at least if the electronic medical record, which we're all moving to different EMRs, we're able to capture who the clinicians of record are so that we have a way of, re of reaching back and forth across the continuum in both upstream and downstream to at least have a better chance of, of communicating with each other. Yeah. I know sometimes with with our own uh, hospitals that, that we work with, we don't ever even get to know who any of the therapists are. But I think it, that would be a good starting point is at least if the discharge paperwork had who the clinicians of record are for the different disciplines. Yeah. And, and I think another interesting thing is, uh, you know, you just mentioned kind of going upstream and downstream. Even as a home health therapist, oftentimes, let's say that patient is readmitted to the hospital, it would probably also be good for the acute care therapist to have an idea of what the home health therapist was doing with the patient before they went into acute care. Yeah, I agree. Right? We, we, absolutely. We, we complete summaries, you know, transfer summaries that go back to the hospitals when the patients are readmitted. But I'm not sure where that information goes. It could go in the EMR and just be lost in the computer somewhere. It could go on a desk. You know, I'm not sure that that information ever gets back to the clinician because I know when I worked in acute care, and this is many years ago before the EMR, I didn't find out any information prior to that admission. You know, from the, the ED is where I, my information started from. Right. So I think one, and I agree, one of the biggest barriers is the paperwork and having a more streamlined um, system for, for paperwork would be wonderful. Now, you're are you associated with the hospital system? Yes, I, I work for a hospital system out on Long Island, and we cover uh, Queens, uh, Nassau, and Suffolk counties. And so we have six hospitals in our system, and we are able to look at their EMR. Uh, we have a portal so we can look at their EMR from the home health side, but not all clinicians no. have that time uh, or the ability to, to sit there and rummage through an, an EMR when, when time is short and they want to actually be treating the patients. Right. So, and, and a lot of times, if you're, if you're not associated with a hospital, you won't even have access to that. That's true. If that's you're true. a home health therapist that's not part of a larger system, then you don't even have access to that information, which is also difficult. Absolutely. It's, it's a challenge. I, I think that looking at the care transition piece, the specific time from, a, from one setting to the next, that's really the most vulnerable point for a patient. 
Um, you know, looking at information, uh, Mary Naylor is a um, is a researcher and, and a clinician involved in care transitions, and, and they did research that 20% of Medicare beneficiaries are readmitted within 30 days, is what they found. Mm-hmm. 34% readmitted within 90 days, and $15 billion are spent annually because of these readmissions. Mm-hmm. And, re- and the hospitalization is the biggest report card right now for home health agencies, as you know. And I think us getting more accurate information and being able to give more accurate information uh, would help to lower that lower that rate. Yeah, because it's it's all about having the right the right information and the timely information in order to treat that patient to the best of your ability. Because, like you said, if you're you're walking into a home blindly, really. And it would be a lot easier if you kind of knew what their functional status was. And, and I think it would also help save your time in that initial visit as well. Yeah, if I had the history from the hospitals of the mm-hmm. patients, how many le- days they were in the hospital, if they have heart failure, you know, there are specific factors that are risk factors for readmission, uh, such as the length of stay, how many days they were in the hospital not moving is a predictor of, of being readmitted. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone with COPD, I was just talking about COPD, COPD the other day, and someone that has COPD that's non-ambulatory at discharge is more than twice as likely to be readmitted back to the hospital within 30 days than somebody mm-hmm. that ambulates 50 feet. And I, I think that type of information is is not transmitted and not not the primary concern of a system that's it's it's physician and nursing nurse driven where they don't look at function in the ways that a therapist looks at at a patient's uh, function and I think that's really our opportunity to to show our value is to be able to transmit that information and let the th- the physicians know and the nurses know this patient is ambulating at 0.2 uh, feet per second or or 0.1 meter per second that's an indicator of a risk of being readmitted. And, and get that functional de- data, the biomarkers that, that I've been trying to push for in, in our organization and, and, and for my um, consulting, get those biomarkers out there. So that way, even if we can't get all of the information, be very specific with the type of information and we can reduce readmissions. And, and uh, the work of Jason Falvey is mm-hmm. it, with looking at hospital acquired deconditioning, I think is, is a critical piece of patients sit in the bed. And even though the length of stay is shorter, they're still getting weaker. And they come home weaker than they were going in. And, and now we try to address it, but they never get back to their baseline. And they end up going back in the hospital. Yeah. And can we kind of circle back on those biomarkers? So what kind of biomarkers are you pushing? And what can other therapists kind of look at when they're, they're um, evaluating their patients? So a couple of biomarkers that are already well known is, is uh, gait speed is one biomarker. You know, looking at specific targets of, of a gait speed for a patient's ambulation uh, ability. So if you're able to ambulate at um, three, you know, the, the, the gait speed someone is required to be able to do to be a, a community ambulator is to have a, fa- a fast gait speed of almost four feet per second. If someone is not at four feet per second and you're in New York and you know when the light changes, if you're at less than four feet per second, you're probably somewhere in the middle of, of the avenue mm-hmm. uh, waiting, you know, people honking you to keep moving to get to the curbside. And so that's a biomarker. So we have fast and slow gate speed 
or usual and uh, fast gait speed, which are biomarkers. Less than 1.86 feet per second is an indicator of a greater risk of falling. Similar to we have tug data and we have other data, but I'm looking to try to expand what we capture with, uh, with hand grip strength, using a dynamometer. There are things that we can capture that uh, indicate frailty. I, I'm a big proponent of, of the frailty phenotype and trying to be able to identify someone that's either non-frail, pre-frail, or frail, and then be more specific when they're referred for home health. Is If they're non-frail, then they probably don't need therapy, and they may not even be homebound. If they're pre-frail, then those are the people we may have the, ba- the greatest impact. And if they're frail, then those are the people that may require more intensive services and long-term planning, but at least we're going in knowing what we're facing. And, and I think if they're pre-frail or frail, our care plan will definitely be different. And, and I don't think that frailty is something that therapists look at. And I think that's exactly what our domain is because the elements of, of frailty are fatigue level, hand grip strength and weakness, you know, str- uh, what's their strength, slower walking speed, so these are measures that are very easily obtainable by a therapist that could be part of that transition team. And where can someone go to find all of these parameters that would categorize someone into frail, pre-frail, or not frail? So the uh, the landmark article on 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 the frailty phenotype is from Linda Freed, F R I E D. I believe it was in two thousand. I don't have the article in front of me. But that would be the uh, if you if you Google Freed frail, frailty phenotype, you'll be able to get to that article. And she that her group categorized five different markers that if you have no markers, it's non-frail. One to two markers, uh, one to two of those markers, then it's considered um, pre-frail. And then if you have three to five markers, you're considered frail. And I, I think that's so helpful for us if we were to look at gait speed and these measures. And start categorizing our patients based on frailty as they're discharged from the hospital. You know, if Kyle in the acute care setting could 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 be able to identify this person's pre-frail, and then I'm in home health, and I get that information that they're pre-frail, their risk of falling is high because of these three objective measures they did in the hospital. And now I re- reassess those measures on my on my initial visit, and I see that the numbers are pretty consistent. You know, then I know that that data is, is accurate. The patient hasn't had any loss of function from the transition, but it, it's now my starting point. If, if I don't have that information up front from when they come from the setting before me, then I'm really starting from ground zero. And, and many patients in home health are frail. Mm-hmm. But if we were able to really look and identify the pre-frail and the non-frail, it would help us. And, you know, I don't know about your practice, but, you know, the baby boomers are, um, are now all you know, gradually entering Medicare eligible age and our volumes are, are you know, our, our, our patient caseloads are, are going through the roof. And I think we need to be able to triage our patients more appropriately for who does need care and who doesn't and, and try not to make visits that aren't necessary. And, and that makes so much sense too for for the for the patient, number one, but certainly for the therapist because, boy, you can really... I think have a more comprehensive plan of care and you can really kind of focus on uh, things that are going to impact the function of that patient. Absolutely. If, you know, there are indicators when someone is frail, their, their risk of being rehospitalized is, is greater. There are, there are uh, correlations between frailty and cognition. 
There are correlations between frailty and infection. You know, there are many different um, parameters, and there are other ways of measuring frailty besides the freed phenotype. Uh, I think that's the one most appropriate for therapists because that's looking at frailty from the physical point of view. Mm -hmm. But there are other measures like uh, there are frailty index indices, and there are other measures of frailty uh, also related to sarcopenia where they may do um, imaging studies and look at the girth of the uh, the muscles and look at what the, the body composition is between muscle and fat. So there are other ways they're, they're researching this, but the only known way to combat frailty to, to at this point is exercise and it has to be appropriately dosed and for our frail patients they actually need to be worked at a higher dosing um, than some other patients because they're so frail but even though it seems it's a higher dose percentage for that patient it's not higher weights you know like a two pound weight for someone that's frail may appear to be heavier than it would be for someone that is non-frail they may not feel like much resistance at all yeah, and it does seem like a little bit of um, just kind of not what you would think, like, oh, I need to have a higher dose for this frail patient, when I think oftentimes, and this is certainly a fault of therapists, I know I made this fault in the past, is that we don't dose enough. And so then if you don't dose enough with exercise, whether that be strength or cardiovascular exercise, then oftentimes that patient just gets stuck as a chronic rehabber and kind of oh, bouncing absolutely. back and yep. forth between different care facilities. You know, absolutely. I, I did a, uh, a webinar at a symposium. Well, actually, I did a symposium back uh, last month and the month before I did a symposium out in, on the, um, the West Coast. And I was asked to talk about heart failure and, and, and cardiac function. And so in my research, I looked up cardiac function and I looked at frailty. And there are indicators that are, are the, same common, uh, the same common risk factors for frailty as well as for heart disease and, and, car and um, heart failure, and, you know, to be more specific. And I said, wow, that's pretty interesting. So I shared that with the group. And also I shared the fact that when you look at what is one of the biggest precursor um, risk factors is lack of physical activity. Mm -hmm. And that also was a, a, a risk factor for obesity. And, and not only is it the diet, but it's the lack of, of activity. So I've, I've been trying to push the, um, the physical activity vital sign as well. And, you know, that's something that I've been trying to encourage therapists to ask the patients on their evaluations. What, how much activity does your patient have? Ask them what their prior level of activity is. Mm -hmm. Not only their prior level of function, meaning did they use a walker or a cane or were they able to get out of bed, but ask them how much activity were you doing? How many minutes per day per week were you doing? And was it at a moderate intensity and, or, or vigorous intensity? To try to capture a baseline of the patient's activity. And I encourage the therapist to use that baseline. If, and many of, our, of my home care patients, they'll tell me, oh, I don't do anything. So I know we're starting at zero, but then my goal and, and maybe my engagement to the patient is, you know what, maybe we can get you to do 10 minutes of activity per day. And, you know, the goal is to get you to 150 minutes of moderate activity per day, uh, per week. Per, yeah, that's per what, week. Yeah. Per week. I wish it were per day, but per right? week. Um, that's what the American Heart Association recommends. 150 minutes, moderate activity per week. And that helps prevent heart disease. And, you know, BMI less than 25, you know, we talked about biomarkers. 
And BMI is, is not the best marker, but it is a marker. And, and mm-hmm. less than 25 is less risk of diabetes, less risk of stroke, less risk of heart attack. Right. And, and I share these numbers. That's good. Yeah. And I think all of that is certainly important in the plan of care. But like you said, you share these numbers with your patients. And I think it's important that we're communicating with our patients why we're doing the things we're doing. Why are you choosing to do X amount of minutes per day of activity? How can they grade their own activity, perhaps using an RPE scale or something, you know? And, and so I think it's so important that we as our therapists communicate these very detailed reasons as to why we're doing what we're doing. You know, I hate hearing, well, patients don't really care. They just want to do. And I was like, I 100% disagree. You know, patients, patients want to know the why and patients want to know the research behind the why. Absolutely. I, I tell my patients, I had a patient that was in her 90s and I don't recall her exact age at this point, but I did a test with her called the, um, the VRI, Ventilatory Response Index, which is a test where you, you, you ask the person to, to count out loud in one, bre- uh, in, as if they, um, in one breath at their normal volume and normal rate. You want them to count to 15. And so I had this patient do it, and it took her four breaths to do it to get to 15. And so my next visit to the house, the patient said to me, Ken, I improved on that measure. I want you to test me again. And so I tested her again, and, and she didn't really hear the part about the rate. So she went one, two, three, four, five as, as quickly yeah. as she could, and she got it done in one breath. But at least I know she was trying. And, uh, you know, like single limb stance, I give them the time. You know, chair stand that test, I give them the time or I give them how many reps. Um, and I have a march in place. And I use the RPE. You, you, you brought up the RPE scale. I make them dose themselves to, an, to, an, to a benefit dose where their body has to respond. And, and overload is, is so is, it's so true in our profession that overload is not it's not looked at and not we don't achieve overload with our patients. No. So we, we do active range of motion and doesn't really we're not challenging them enough, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there has to be a point where you add some resistance or uh, add some time because, you know, kind of uh, oftentimes when I think we look at adding load, people sort of look at the work of someone like Tim Gabbett, who's very big in the sports medicine field um, with his uh, research into the amount of load one should have so that they aren't just for injury prevention, right? Now, mm-hmm. we can take his concepts and put them into a home health setting with a frail patient. Just because yeah. he speaks to, in the sports medicine crowd does not mean that we can't say, well, you know, if this person needs to stand up and walk 20 feet to go to the bathroom and walk 20 feet back, then that's what we should be training them. We should be training them more than that 20 feet, perhaps. We should be training them at different times of the day. We should be training them when they're already a little tired, right? Because when do people get up to go to the bathroom often? Yeah, no, I... In the middle I, uh, of the night when they're yeah, already a little tired, you know? So yep. I think we can take some of his principles of uh, adding load to activity without it having to be a professional soccer player. Because adding load is adding load. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree 100%. You know, we don't... Even though they're frail we need to overload their system and monitor them closely like we would monitor anybody, mm-hmm. but make sure that we are overloading their system. 
you know, the research shows that we're not putting them back in the hospital when we overload them. We actually help them regain more function and we actually help them have a better quality of life. And can you, you know, give a quick, maybe a quick example of a patient you had at uh, a session where maybe you overloaded them? Because I don't want people to think we're advocating, you know, having them, I don't know, do... 50 pound dumbbell presses or something. That's right. So can you give a quick example of maybe a patient that you've worked with that you use that overload principle with? So uh, let's, most of my patients that are the frail patients, especially they have, they have weak extensor muscles. And so they have weak hip extensors, weak uh, quads. And so what I may do is have them do exercise with the yellow TheraBand or uh, an orange or uh, a red TheraBand. And so what I'll use is I'll, I'll work at 30 to 60% of one RM and I'll basically have them do a seated leg press with the TheraBand where I get them goes nice and slow, controlled movements full at, you know, to full end range of movement or slightly before locking out the knee and then bring the leg back and have them work in the concentric, eccentric fashion. And it could be with the yellow TheraBand. And the idea of, of using the RPE scale is I give them a TheraBand that I think is appropriate for them. I ask them to do, if it's if I'm looking to do um, 30 to 60% of 1RM, then I'm going to look for higher reps. And if I'm looking for, um, for them to do uh, 60 to 80% of 1RM, I'm asking them to do less reps. But if they can do up to 25 reps and their RPE is between a 3 and a 4, then that's an appropriate resistance for them for the 30 to 60% of 1RM. If they're able to do more than 25 good ones, which means they can stop on a dime, which means their RPE is less than a three, then that tells me that I need to increase the resistance for that next, that next session. If they're at, a, at greater than a four and they can't get up to the, 20, uh, the 12 to 25 reps, then I'm going to lower the resistance on my next session because that might have been too much resistance. And you can do the same concept, not with the TheraBand, but rather with, you know, ankle cuff weights mm -hmm. uh, or whatever you want to do, sandbags or, or cans if you're doing upper extremity. But the idea is to use the RPE scale to say, tell me what effort you're working at. And then we want you to do a certain number of good reps at that, at that effort level. And that's where we're going to be working them into a resistance zone that is overload to be effective. And it doesn't have to be a lot. Our, RP, our, um, our frail patients, they really can't do that much. But at least we're challenging them to at an appropriate level. And lo and behold, the research is there that when you challenge them to overload, you very quickly are able to increase their um, the, the uh, workload on that, the patient. And then the other part of it is they have to have the right diet. They need to have the right protein. Someone that has mm -hmm. toast, toast with butter every morning, you know, they're not having enough protein in their diet to expect that they're going to build muscle is, is unrealistic. So then, you know, that's another factor is they have to eat the right, they have to have the right fuel going in in order to build up the muscles we're trying to build up. Absolutely. And do you recommend that? And I th thank you. I think that's a great, um, before I go on to the next question, I think that was a, a great example of overload for those frail patients. And I think physical therapists need not be afraid to do exactly what you just said. Because um, oftentimes I think they are. And then again, we're back to the chronic rehabber, you know, because they were never, we didn't challenge the system enough in the first place. And so then they're just kind of back to where they started from, which kind of sucks. Because um, then they're in and out of hospital and in and out of rehab instead of becoming, hopefully, uh, a more independent, functional human being. Yep, true. 
Um, so now, do you recommend for your patients, and I don't know if their hospital does this, but something like a health coach? Yeah, so health coaching, is that's another concept that actually is part of the care transitions. And so uh, I, I do recommend health coaches. Oftentimes, our patients, um, we use the patient's caregiver as a health coach. So when I do my evaluations in the home, even though it's the health coach is most effective starting in the hospital, um, in the home, I'll ask the family member, who's going to be the coach? Because, you know, if I look at my own exercise, I certainly do better when I have somebody with me to, to help motivate me and, and move me along. And so I ask who's the family member that's going to be a health coach. It's, it's very important to have another set of ears to hear the information, mm -hmm. to make sure that what the patient's being instructed to do for self-management, another part of the um, care transition is a patient to have the information that is uh, inf important for them and um, understandable to them. You know, it's not just me talking to the therapist in the other setting. It's also all of us talking to the patient and, and helping them to self-manage. And that health coach to motivate the patient and to provide be a second set of ears um, is important. Sometimes the health coach is somebody that is from the hospital or someone that is another care uh, team member and not a family member. But that is very, very important, I believe, to have health coaches in, this, in the uh, for that patient. Yeah, and oftentimes, I mean, I, I work in home health, but my population is very, very different from a traditional home health in that uh, my patients, there's people who prefer to have someone come to them. Okay. So, you know, they're, I don't have any frail patients, I'll put it that way. Um, most of my patients are a little bit younger, but even for those patients who are a little bit younger, when they go through, let's say, having a surgery and going to see their doctor for a post-op visit, and then I see them, and they're like, yeah, the doctor, I had a patient who had um, basically, long, without getting into too much detail, somewhat of a bunionectomy surgery, and, but he has extreme arthritis uh, in the joint in that first toe. So he's like, yeah, the doctor said, this was at six weeks, like, yeah, I said I can go up and down on one foot, like, going up onto the toes and back down. I'm like, really? Because I have a really hard time believing that given the surgery you have and the amount of arthritis in your toe. So I call the doctor and lo and behold, he didn't say that. He never said that. So even patients who have are younger without any frailty issues still sometimes need that other person there because they're not quite hearing what the doctor's saying. Absolutely. You know, and, and I thought that was such a perfect example because here I have someone without any cognitive problems, no, no frailty at all, but completely misinterpreted what the doctor said. Yeah, I mean, I, I know from my own personal experience, I had to have uh, eye surgery a few, quite a few years ago, and my wife was with me, and the surgeon, you know, gave the directions for the, the four different types of eye drops and, and do this and do that and don't lay like this and head position. And, you know, I'm in the in, I'm in the medical field and I still didn't hear everything completely right. So it, I was happy my wife was there to say, no, he said this, he said that. And my wife actually took notes, which I do recommend also is to, to take your own notes uh, of what is being said. And so that was a helpful thing for me. And, and I'm in the field and, I, and I'm able to speak the jargon. Uh, more so than than a layperson, and so I agree with you. They they uh, people can miss mishear um, what they're being told to do, or they tell themselves, "I want to do more." 
Mm-hmm. And they, they, they fool themselves. And while well, a little is great, a lot is better. I've had that knee patient that I have to get back to work in two weeks. And so I tell them to do a certain amount of activity and they triple it, thinking triple right. is better. And right. that knee, you could cook an egg on it the next right. time I go back. Right, totally. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've had those patients quite a bit here. Well, we're both in New York, so we know how that goes. Um, so now, I guess a, another question is, do you recommend, and maybe this is kind of going back into the communication aspect of maybe what's missing from those care transitions, I think, do you recommend the patients, and let's say they have a caregiver with them or a health coach or a health proxy, taking down notes maybe during a physical therapy session or with the doctor before the day the day they're discharged, and then keeping those notes and giving them to you. Yeah, no, I, I think I think having the patient write their own notes as, wherever possible. Mm-hmm. You know, some people can uh, have difficulty writing, yeah. and you know, arthritis, and I understand that. But where possible, have them write it in their own words. Mm-hmm. It's more meaningful to them. And then certainly have that information. If they were to write it down and I have access to it when they come to me, you know, it would be, it would, if I'm not able to read all of their handwriting, at least it's some talking points that I can, I can try to uh, explore what's going on and what they, what they were being told. Uh, more recently with everyone having iPads and, you know, smartphones, I've been, I've been asking my patients, can I borrow your phone? And then I've been recording my own, their own session using their own phone. So I have them do their home exercise program on their phone, and they have my verbal cues, but it's themselves seeing themselves doing the program. And I recommend that they start recording, you know, when anyone's giving them information, ask for, you know, say, is it okay if I record this on my phone? I personally would not have any problem with that. And it's a way they can actually record the information. And I found that it actually has helped. Uh, anecdotally for me anyway, it's improved compliance and, and adherence to the programs. And they've done it more, not only been doing the program more, um, more often, but doing it more uh, appropriately, you know, f- doing it correctly. Yeah. And I think that's great advice. So for anyone listening, if you are a therapist, I also, I do the same thing. Can I um, have my patients either videotape me doing exercises or I videotape them doing it with my cueing as well? And it's been a huge help um, for the patients because they always have their phone on them. So if they forget, they can just easily look that up. And they don't have to go to like another app or another this or, you know, one more uh, place to look up their exercises. They just have it right in front of them on their phone. So I find it to be very easy. Um, so we're starting to kind of wrap things up, but, um, I just want to kind of do a quick review. So things that can make for easier care transitions are better communication between team members. And that includes the patient as well. Um, a better EMR system, which listen, who doesn't, I mean, we all want that, um, better care follow-up healthcare coaches, um, and looking at specific markers of function versus just can they are they breathing and is their heart beating, right? Yeah, no, exactly, absolutely. And so, are there any other tips or tricks or thoughts that maybe we left out that you want to kind of leave the listeners with? Well, I think that you know the coaching part is important. Uh, coordination of the care is also a factor. It's 
It's making sure that the information we need, we get, but it's also timely. You know, being getting the information two days later or three days later also is not is not efficient or effective care. Um, I've had patients that are non-weight bearing, and you know they come home and you know the the, the paperwork says they're non-weight bearing. The patient says, "Oh no, the doctor. I just saw the orthopedist before I came home from the rehab, and and they told me I'm full weight bearing." And I go back to the records, and there's no indication anywhere that they are um, full weight bearing. And so then I have to call the orthopedist to get the, the to get that order. And then the orthopedist is out of town, not available. He'll call me back. Um, I have to say that the physicians I deal with at HSS and in Manhattan. I mean, they're top notch. They get back to you the same day. Yes. Uh, some other places, not so not so uh, timely. And so sometimes it could be delayed. And, and we had one patient, not my patient. Um, I went in to see the patient for another therapist a week later. And at that point, the patient still hadn't gotten any information. So they were told by the clinician they needed to be non-weight bearing. And the sad reality was that patient was weight bearing was tolerated. And so they, they were self-limiting because the clinician did not have the right information and didn't want to make any assumptions. And mm-hmm. we can't take the patient's word for as hearsay. You know, we do need to have orders. So um, that was a negative event. Luckily, nothing happened to the patient other than their, their recovery was delayed a week. Mm. Seriously. Yeah. And, you know, I think care transitions are difficult times. I think they're difficult times for the patient. They're difficult times for the family members or caregivers and certainly for the healthcare team as a whole, because we want to make sure that our patients transition with as little trauma as possible. And I think all of the things that you mentioned today would really go a long way in achieving that goal. So before we finish, I have been asking all of my guests this very the same question and that and I probably should have given you a heads up on this before we started but I forgot so I'm just going to lay it on you um, given where you are now in your life and in your career what advice would you give to yourself as a new graduate this is going to be different than the topic we've, we've discussed um, for this whole session sure but the advice that I would give myself and, and really what I give to new um, to students, because we have a student program at our organization, mm-hmm. is really I want you to, to think about how important it is to learn about the business side of our profession and to learn about the regulatory side of our profession so that you know our, our colleagues don't get taken advantage of. You know, that's what I would tell myself is to know what the rules are that were being billed and to understand how the payment is made and to understand that some metrics that are a business metrics like return on investment, you know, what does that mean? And tell, and I try to teach clinicians, we can't just go treat patients. We really need to look at the value and what we're providing. And if it's not going to have an impact, then, then ultimately there may not be any value seen by the patient or by the, by the, uh, the payer for the, for the care. So those are my big things is look, know the rules, not just the clinical side, but know the rules we bill and also know the, um, the regulations we work under and then the, the, uh, the billing and the financial side of our profession because it is a business as well. 
Yeah, and I think that's great advice. And I think that's something that we're seeing a little bit more of with newer generations of PTs. So I think we can all be happy about that. Um, and on that note, Ken, I want to thank you so much. This was really great. There's a lot, so much practical information to give to therapists and, and a lot of food for thought. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you again. Uh, you're welcome. And everyone, uh, thanks for tuning in and listening and downloading. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.